Hey, listeners, this is Chris McDonald. I wanted to let you know that this is my first Encore episode I'm bringing back for you from earlier my podcast. I've been rolling out four to five episodes per month for two and a half years, and now I'm up to 150 episodes, which is amazing. And much thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in and supporting the podcast. But with that many releases for that period of time, it has started to wear me down. I've been feeling more burned out this past fall. So I'm working on my self-care this holiday season and taking some time off from recording. For you, I'm releasing my most favorite and most popular top three episodes that I'm sure you're going to love. Even if you've heard these before, I know listening a second time, you'll still learn something new. Today's episode is with my yoga teacher, trainer, mentor, Christine Weber. She offers a wealth of knowledge for you, and I know it will be beneficial for you. Stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy these Encore episodes. This is Holistic Counseling, the podcast for mental health therapists who want to deepen their knowledge of holistic modalities and build their practice with confidence. I'm your host, Chris McDonald, licensed therapist. I am so glad you're here for the journey. Welcome to today's episode of the Holistic Counseling Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDonald. Today's guest is someone who is a great mentor to me, my former yoga teacher who taught me in my 200-hour yoga teacher training. She really got me started in using holistic yoga through my clinical practice. And what I loved about her training is it was specifically geared towards behavior health professionals. When I first started looking, I found a lot of regular yoga training, but realized that I wanted something that was geared towards licensed professionals. And this totally, the subtle yoga totally met the mark. So I'm also a part of her membership site, the Subtle Yoga Resilience Society, since last summer, and I love it. So I've been using that every week as part of my personal practice and as part of learning, continuing to learn about subtle yoga to use with my clients. And her name is Christine Weber, and she is a leading world authority on the neuroscientific benefits of slow, mindful yoga and an advocate for the use of these practices as a part of the solution to the healthcare crisis. She's been training mental health professionals to use yoga in their clinical practices for over a decade in Asheville, North Carolina. But she is coming to us from all the way in New Zealand. <laughs> the first international person on the podcast. Yay! Welcome to the podcast, Christine. <laughs> oh, that was a good intro. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> yes, I'm coming from New Zealand because we moved here. I was so jealous of you during the pandemic when they were doing so well with the pandemic. I was like, she picked the right time to move. My husband is from Auckland, so it wasn't a big deal for us to move here. And we don't know how long we'll be here. We thought we'd just go hide out to see the for a while. Good for you. Is is COVID still in control there? Yes, they don't have any cases. Occasionally, they'll get a case in managed isolation, which is their quarantine program, but there's no cases in the community. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, actually, what they've done. But it's an island, so, you know. That's true, too. Two islands. Right, right. That has to be refreshing when you came from the U.S. and It was, it was like, I felt like I won the lottery. (laughs) That's what it felt like. I did. I won the COVID lottery when when we got out of managed isolation because you have to be in quarantine for two weeks, and then we got out. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we went to the airport. We flew to Christchurch, which is where we're living, um, and just saw people being normal. It was. I just brought me to. I love that people bring normal. (laughs) 
Oh, that. Wow, that is something. But can you share more with my listeners more about yourself and your work? Sure. So I have been teaching yoga since 1995, and I started training yoga teachers in 2003. My husband is a psychotherapist. His name is Brett Skullthorpe. He's a licensed clinical addiction specialist, licensed clinical addiction specialist. Sorry, I already said that. Licensed social worker, clinical okay. social worker. And also he's a prevention specialist and a yogi. And so We've been collaborating for a long time and started to think it was like in the mid 2000s. We were like, we really need training for mental health professionals. Let's figure out how to do this. And nobody at that time, that would have been around 2005, 2006. Nobody at that time was talking about yoga and mental health. In fact, it was yoga was so exercise oriented back then. And it still is. There's still but there's yes. more yoga now. And so we decided to to collaborate and try and figure out how to reach out to some some agencies that might be interested in yoga. And the other person, of course, was one of my students at the time, Ashley Lester, who's also a licensed clinical social worker and so, and my husband's very introverted and he was like, I don't really want to present. And I was like, okay. And so I asked Ashley. And so together. Well, that's we, how she got involved. And, right. Right. Know, and so okay. together we approached Mayhack, the Mountaineering Health Education Center, which is a very prominent continuing education organization in the Western part of North Carolina. It's affiliated with UNC Chapel Hill, as all the AHECs are, the Area Health Education Centers. And but Mayhack has always been very much on the cutting edge because it's in Asheville, and so there's so much. Um, and Asheville is always innovation. on the cutting edge, right? <laughs> yeah, and there's so much there's so much innovation there. So we approached Mayhack, and at first they were like, "What? <laughs> like, what are you trying to do here?" They just didn't get it. So, so we did a little plotting, and we said we got to find the person who knows something about yoga at Mayhack. And so we found the person who had the yoga mat in her office. And we were like, we need there you go. And it turned out her name was Elizabeth Fleming. And it turned out that she was the director of the mental health continuing education at that time. And she was like, you want to do yoga for depression, and anxiety and trauma and addiction recovery? We were like, yeah, we want to teach about that. And she was like, OK. <laughs> So, it, so you're right, finding the right person. Yeah, it was about finding the right person. She was like, I think that sounds cool. And when we first started, we'd have these tiny little classes, like 10 or eight or 10 people. And I remember one guy coming to the class going, I just need CEUs. That's the only reason I'm here. And this has nothing to do with mental health. And I was like, uh, okay, that was the, that was one of my first, you know, it was a very hard sell in the beginning, I should say. Oh, okay. But over these past 12 or, you know, 11 or 12 years, things have shifted dramatically. And now we have people coming from all over the country because our program is so unique. It was the first of its kind in the country. We've been doing it for a long time. We've graduated hundreds of clinicians and it's just it's so exciting and then the other factors right like how much therapy has started to look to the body and to bring yeah a big shift to the somatic awareness and big shift right i agree so that's also been really supportive of our work and right now i'm in the middle i don't know if you know this chris but i'm in the middle of a research study at, oh, that's um, great. A, yeah, we're doing a research study at a state-run treatment facility 
for drug and alcohol treatment facility in collaboration with East Tennessee University on looking to settle yoga support recovery in early recovery, the first two weeks of early recovery, just settle yoga support it. And can it be delivered by clinicians? Because I trained the trainers. I'm not delivering the service in that study. I trained the clinicians to deliver the right. service, which I think is a really powerful, potentially could be a very powerful strategy because clinicians already have this trust relationship with their clients, right? Yeah. And so if they're delivering the service, there's going to be more buy-in, more people like, okay, I can do yoga. And then also understanding the comorbid physical limitations that often come along with mental health uh, challenges, like like low back pain, like fatigue, being able to share chair yoga practices. That's what we're doing in the study, chair yoga. And reframing yoga as a way to regulate the nervous system rather than just a fitness. And that's what I learned with subtle yoga was that whole psychoeducation piece that we're not going to give you abs or you're not here for the strength training. It's it's all right. about the nervous system regulation. Exactly. Yeah, that's so important. Yeah, so that's what I've been up to. And then since I've moved to New Zealand, I'm just doing everything remotely, which is why I'm like, oh, not how long we could stay here because I'm getting up really early in the morning. <laughs> that's sure. The time difference has got to be a shift for you. Right. But mostly, mostly what I'm doing now is working on some online programs. So we'll have, this year, we'll have an online introductory course out for mental health professionals. But it, it, won't be, it won't be the whole teacher training, but it'll at least be some introduction and a lot of practices that mental health professionals can use. Right. I know that your background, you've had a lot of training, and I know you went to India at one point. So what was it about the slow, mindful yoga that you dove into instead of the other kinds? Well, actually, slow, mindful yoga is the way that yoga was taught to me when I started doing it. So I had a social studies teacher in sixth grade who was a hippie. So this had been like 1977 or something. And she taught us yoga class on Wednesday afternoons during our club period. We went to yoga club and that was it was slow and mindful like that. That's, that's how you were introduced. Yeah. yeah, that's how I was introduced. And then I, I went to India. Well, I went to Asia. First of all, I lived in California for a few years in the late 80s after grad school. And at that time, I started doing some yoga. There were only two yoga studios in the Bay Area at that time. There was the Iyengar Institute. There might have been three. But anyway, there was the Iyengar Institute. There was another one out in the Haight-Ashbury. And then there was one over in, in the Bay Area. So I was studying yoga just with some of my bodywork teachers who were teaching yoga as part of bodywork. So, so I did some yoga in the Bay Area, but I never got into fitness-based yoga. I was doing it as a healing practice. Then I went to Asia for four years. I spent about six months um, in India at various ashrams studying yoga. Lots of lots of meditation. That's really was the, always taught to me as the primary yoga practice was meditation, and then the asanas and the breathing practices support the meditation. and And the whole point of yoga is to still your mind, which is also the point of psychotherapy to be in. Right. That's why there's agency. such a great intersection with that. Right, right. I mean, it's all about agency, isn't it? And having yeah. control over yeah. the monkey mind. 
So, so I learned all that in India. When I came back to the States in 1995, I just started teaching like that. And then it started to hit me, oh, something has changed about yoga in this country because I was going to classes and workshops and I was like, whoa, somebody is this all about sweating. And it was very different here than what I had studied. And I did, I have to admit, I learned how to teach that kind of fitnessy yoga because that's what everybody expected. And I thought, if I'm going to be a yoga teacher, I have to learn how to do this. And it's not rocket science. So I, I figured out how to teach vinyasa. I took a few workshops and I had done training. And also I spent six weeks training at an ashram. That was in Mexico. So I, so I had been teaching all this stuff. I had been trained to teach sort of more traditional yoga. But then I encountered the fitness craze and thought, okay, if you can't beat them, join them. And I started teaching hard, fast, sweaty stuff. And it was in 2002 or 2003, maybe one day I came to class and to teach. And it was raining outside. And there were only like five people in my class. And they said, hey, what do y'all want to do today? And one of the women said, I want to do what you do. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, what's your home practice like? And I was like, interesting. That? Yeah, she, and it was interesting because I guess, you know, I was always talking about India and my travels and blah, 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 and my meditation. And so, so I was like, you want to do that? You don't want to do that. And she's like, no, I want to try that. And everybody else in the group was like this introverted day. And everybody else in the group said, yeah, let's do that. And so I led them through this one-hour sequence of what I do in my home practice, including some pranayama and meditation. And at the end of the class, they said, we want to do that every week. <laughs> Amazing. I feel good for you, too. Validating. It was, so va it was very validating. Yeah, it was like, yeah. oh, you're supposed to teach what not try and fake it, which is, I guess, what I was doing. I wasn't trying to fake it, but I was trying to yeah. do something that I wasn't passionate about. And there's a difference, else. yeah, I'm sure, and how that feels in your body. and Yeah, and how it feels in your body and also in my sense of mastery over the material. So I never was a really, like, I'm an athletic person, but I was never, like, a hypermobile acrobatic kind of yoga person that just isn't me and I had a lot of struggles with feeling inferior about that because of what was so mm. popular but I worked really hard and I started my teacher training and I started training teachers in 2003 and I started my own program in 2006 and I started really working on the messaging the psychoeducational stuff like this is for your nervous system. It's not for your butt. This is about mental health. It's not about fitness. And of course, there's some overlap there. But just making that distinction yeah. helped people be like, okay, I could do my exercise there. But when I come to Christine's work, when I work with her, I know that I'm working with her to help regulate my nervous system. And it's a different goal. I have a different goal. And regulate my nervous system and also look more closely look more you know give myself time to to contemplate and look at my life and see what I want from my life and that's mm. what this kind of practice does which is that's pretty profound yeah yeah and I think it's why it dove dovetails so well with with mental health work whatever you're doing in terms of mental health particularly with addiction recovery but but very much also with improving mental health, because it is about that giving yourself time and space to be present with yourself and start developing a better relationship with yourself and start to untangle 
a lot of the cultural and familial patterning that really makes people miserable. (laughs) Not the true. I'm thinking about the past year with the pandemic and how much more. And I think more people have turned to yoga and meditation in the past year, too. More introspection. and I don't know if there's any data on that. I don't know. Um, the, I'm just guessing. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> I know. I mean, it would be lovely if that was the case, but the data, and perhaps it is. I don't know. Somebody yeah, needs to yeah. do a study on it, but, but most of the data, yeah. <laughs> yeah, most of the data that I'm seeing is about weight gain, a lack of activity, lack of fitness, lack of exercise, increased chronic health conditions. That's most of the data that I'm seeing, unfortunately. I think the rationale is because it's a global trauma, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So we're in the middle of a global trauma. And what do people prioritize during trauma? Survival. And so eating is considered essential during survival. Watching the news will be considered essential because you got to make sure things are, you're safe. And then Everything else just is gone. Everything else goes away, including contemplative, including the opportunity to contemplate the future and what your life is about and what you want to do with yourself. Like that stuff, just all good gets put on hold during trauma. So not everybody's going to experience this as traumatic, but in general, it's a global trauma. And so that requires trauma interventions, I think. And one of the one of the main things with trauma is you've got to get the nervous system back online so that there is the capacity to contemplate. You have to get back into the prefrontal cortex so there is a capacity to contemplate because otherwise you're just survival brain. And that's the survival brain mode for long periods of time is what leads to chronic stress and chronic inflammation and chronic health conditions. Exactly. And I think that makes a lot of sense about the trauma piece. And I still have clients that struggle even getting vaccinated because now we got the vaccine here in North Carolina and it's available to anyone that wants it. And But some are still having that pandemic anxiety. That's pretty debilitating. But I, and I try to use the psychoeducation as well that this is a global trauma and it makes sense why that your brain has not caught up with this. And it's going to take some time to work through this and process it. And and that's why I find that subtle yoga comes in so perfectly. Because like, just for example, like last night, I had a client I saw and and immediately when she jumped on the video call, she was just, you could tell she's like fidgety and hyped up. So we immediately did some of the grounding, a little bit of breath work, three-part breath. And then afterwards, she was just like, I feel so much better. And she was like, oh, that's so good. Yeah. So being able to see it, that's why I love it, because I can't imagine someone like that to start. OK, let's just start with talk therapy. <laughs> right, right. I mean, you right. can, but I just feel like it brings it to a whole other level. And the, also the neuroscience of what's going on there. So when somebody is yeah. acting yeah. out of their limbic brain or even brainstem <clears throat> and not the prefrontal cortex isn't online, then you can't have rational conversations yeah, yeah. with someone. So you've got to address the dysfunction in the nervous system via some kind of somatic intervention in order to be able to access the front brain and that executive function stuff. So so that's the piece of it that I think is um, so helpful for psychotherapists because when you do have somebody in your office or in the Zoom call who is exhibiting this anxiety symptoms, you're not necessarily going to be able to talk that person down. Not always, no. Mm -mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, sometimes, yeah, but that requires a certain level of regulation, of self-regulation that the person already inherently can access. If somebody's not being able to access that, whatever their tools are for self-regulation, then you do have to bring the body into the conversation. And frankly, a problem with psychotherapy in the West is that we've bifurcated the body and the mind and the spirit. Trifurcated, I guess, is what the word being. We've, we have separated yeah. and divorced mm-hmm. the body, mind, and spirit. What yoga offers us beyond the somatic interventions is the opportunity to leave that Cartesian dualism in the dustbins of history where it belongs. It's been around way too long and reclaim our very human need for integration of body, mind, and spirit. That is the way that human beings are supposed to live. And you can actually trace the mental health epidemic, the substance abuse epidemic, back to that dysfunctional worldview that all of us in this culture hold. It's biopsychospiritual, biopsychosocial spiritual. It's not simply that there's something wrong with your nervous system or that there's something dysfunctional about your brain. No, those things are all part of the equation, but actually the bigger overarching problem is the worldview issue. And this worldview is what ends us, it causes us to end up with the massive social and cultural and environmental problems that we're facing, including racism, including the environment, including the pandemic. All of these things emerge from a dysfunctional, capitalism-driven worldview that is not human. It doesn't look at the world and say the world is a spiritual place and I'm here to play. The, the yogis use the word maya. I'm here to play in this spiritual, in this divine, if you like, in this divine universe and everything. And if you don't want to go to the religious part of that, that's fine. But even the most devout atheist can admit that every single thing in this universe, in the natural world, is interconnected and interdependent. Absolutely, and we are part of the, and we are part of this natural world, and we are interconnected, and we are interdependent, and we keep pushing ourselves into greater and greater isolation, which you, we see the uptick. Right, so mental health problems were at eleven percent in twenty nineteen. By December 2020, they were 40% of Americans were reporting mental health problems. So we see what happens with isolation. It is fundamentally against our nature as human beings. And when we reclaim who we are as human beings and we reclaim our perspective on this world as a as interconnected, if not divine, it it offers this whole new worldview from which to not only approach therapy but approach everything about our lives, that we can reclaim our birthright, which is as an interconnected, interdependent species amongst living in this world that is generated and maintained by love. And when we start getting into that, we we start to heal our dysfunctional attachment patterning. We start to heal that stuff. And the dysfunctional attachment patterning comes because of the worldview. Building and managing the practice you want can be challenging. That's why Alma offers administrative tools, time-saving resources, and an easy way to navigate insurance. So whether you're just starting out or have been working independently for years, 
You can get the support you need to build your private practice, create a profile in Alma's searchable directory, and share what makes you unique, like your specialties and areas of expertise. People who are looking for care can filter by these details so that they're not finding any therapist, they're finding you. Alma will also help you get credentialed with major insurance payers within 45 days and handle all of the paperwork from eligibility checks to claim submissions. That means you can spend less time on the details and more time delivering great care. Plus, they guarantee payment within two weeks of every appointment. You support your clients. Alma supports you. Visit HelloAlma.com to learn more. That's HelloAlma.com. It all comes back to that. It all it always comes back to that. It always comes back to this dysfunction and the worldview. But I see things shifting. And here's the thing: when you have a global trauma, you have the opportunity. You have the opportunity for global post-traumatic growth. Global post-traumatic growth. I love just that. Individual. Yeah. Thinking of the growth opportunity with that, and I think that's another thing that clinicians should be aware of that. The yoga that you teach is the trauma-informed, and you really emphasize that throughout the training. Yeah, we look through the lens of trauma. We look through the lens of trauma. And so that's saying that there is personal, societal, global trauma that affects all of us. And I never, ever want to. But you're always going to trigger people. So I recently learned the term brave space, B-R-A-V-E, brave space. We used to talk about safe, we always talk about safe spaces. And it's great to create safe spaces, but they're never going to be safe for everybody. No. So when we talk about this idea of brave space, it's like we can create a space where you can feel brave. And that sense of courage is the fire in the belly, literally, in the yoga tradition that can help you to with personal as well as social transformation. I haven't heard that before. That's really interesting. I love it. Yeah, I learned that uh, recently. And I just, I feel like it's such a powerful way of thinking. Yeah. Actually, I learned it from a woman. I'll just give her a little shout out here. I have to remember her last name. I remember her first name. Let's see. She does a lot of work with social justice. Her name is Charlie, <laughs> but I can't remember her last name. I'm That's okay. Right you now. can look it up. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we'll add it in the show notes too if you're the link. Okay. <laughs> okay. She's and I believe and I can't remember where she's located, but anyway, she does really good work with social justice, okay. and she mm-hmm. taught me this idea, brave space, which I just love. Yeah. So, can you share any of the research that shows the benefits of yoga on anxiety or depression? Some of the best are just off the top of my head. Obviously, there's there's a lot of it, but some of the best studies have come out of Germany from this guy named this researcher named Holger Kramer, and he's done numerous meta analyses and systematic reviews on looking at yoga for depression, for anxiety, for mental health in general, for addiction recovery. One of the things I really love. He says a couple of things. So one of the things he says in one study is that the best yoga is the kind of yoga that you'll do. I love that. <laughs> Which I've heard that before. That's great. It's the best. But, there, but he has also concluded in a study about depression, and I've seen this in other places as well, that slow, mindful yoga is the best yoga for depression, which makes perfect sense because you're not yes. going to send somebody with to low energy yoga class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're not going to send them to hot yoga. So that makes a lot of sense to me. So any of his work, I highly recommend. There's also a group of researchers called the Kripalu Research Consortium. I haven't seen anything from them lately, but in 2014, 
they uh, published an article about the mechanisms that underlie, and I can give you the link to the article for the show, yeah, that'd be the great. mechanisms that underlie the benefits of yoga on psychological health. So that's another good study, right. good kind of general study that I would recommend. There's also a study that came out of Duke, I believe it was in 2012, called Yoga on Our Minds. That was also a meta-analysis systematic review. That was awesome. So we're starting to move towards a evidence-informed, if not evidence Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too. Practice. And yeah, there's nobody. We need somebody in the yoga world. It's probably not me, but we need somebody in the yoga world who's like Francine Shapiro of EMDR. And what Francine did was just push and push for 20 years of research studies until she got EMDR recognized in the evidence-based registry. And yoga is such a broad word and it means so many things. And there's so much yoga out there that is not trauma-informed, that is not accessible, that is not nervous system-oriented, that can mess up your nervous system, yes. that can mess mm -hmm. up your back. There's so much yoga out there. So yoga in, in itself, will, I think, will never be in the evidence-based registry, but there are certain people like myself and a bunch of other people that are working towards more protocols that could potentially get into the evidence-based okay. registry. So like we're going in that direction, but at the moment there's, as a clinician, if you want to refer your clients to yoga, you have to be incredibly discriminating, discerning, I should say, about who you're going to refer your clients to because there's yes. so much yoga out there that is not safe emotionally. Oh my God, yes. The best part of your training was we had to go to different classes and write up a report and check off about all the trauma-informed and how they set up their classes. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you got the first hand. I went to, I, I wanted to go to different places I'd never been. So I was like, okay, let me try this out. And the one lady, she stopped the class and just, okay, what everybody's doing is wrong. I'm just like, I was like taken aback. Now, first of all, there was like 20 people in this little room. I And I was in the middle. So I, and I'm not, you know, I didn't have PTSD. I was just like, oh my God, I felt so tense just being there. But then when she's just like, I don't PTSD. It, <laughs> I don't it was. I, just, I, mean, it, I don't want to, I don't want to gossip about or no, put I down know. the yoga world, but I will say that I've had three different students who were sent yeah. to, uh, the emergency room in an oh, in an ambulance God. after panic attacks from I one particular so. yoga teacher. I could totally see that because she right. she made everybody just um, do their what was the pose? Oh gosh, now I can't even think of it. Oh, could just cobra. I think it was just cobra because it was the elbows. If your elbows aren't tucked in, and it has to be perfect. And then she kept touching me during. I was just like, dude. Right. Stop touching right. me. Incorrect. Well, this is very common, and many yoga teachers have, and they're fitness, they're fitness yeah, know. professionals. Mm -hmm. And you think about fitness professionals and how they bark at their at their uh, students. So there's a lot of that, and that's why the main thing is that, first of all, there's tons of, of really good yoga going on out there, and even if the teacher hasn't been trained in trauma-informed yeah, classes, yeah. they could still be really good. So it's more about just going to classes, finding who you feel like is safe. And you know, you're never going to change anybody, but just find who you're who's safe and then refer. Because you can't just say, go do yoga. Like I hear that all the time. I Doctors know. are like, oh, you yeah. need to do yoga. If the doctor doesn't know who to refer to, 
it's a big problem. You're going to re-traumatize someone physically or emotionally and or emotionally. And so it's very important for people, for mental health, allied health professionals to really understand what they're doing in referrals and to not just hear who's the good yoga teacher is because often the good yoga teacher in your town is an acrobat and maybe has a fun personality, but they do some kind of acrobatic performance kind of yoga. That's not where you want to send people. It has to be people who really understand. And basically you want to look for a yoga therapist if you can find a yoga therapist, they may or may not be trauma-informed. Finding the proper person, I think, as clinicians, because we don't want to do harm either with the clients that we see. So we want to be careful who we refer to. Absolutely. So you have to be informed. I mean, just like the way you would be with when you're referring to other therapists, you don't just go, oh, go get psychotherapy to your clients when it's when you need to refer out. You're like, I want you to go to this person because this is the person who's going to help you with with X, Y, or Z, and that's what you need, and I can't do that, right? So it's the same thing with referring to to yoga professionals. You want that. You want to feel like well, it's not the same thing because you just want to keep doing therapy with your client. But if you want to help your client, yeah, is because you think they need more of that somatic regulation, then you have to find the right yoga person for them. Okay. So can you talk to the benefits of clinician self-care if they're using yoga with clients? How does that help the clinician? There is certainly a parallel process going on here. And what we hear over and over again is clinicians saying to us, I can't believe how good I feel when I do some yoga with my client. Because we recommend that. We don't recommend you sitting there and saying, Okay, do this. And know, just instructing, up. yeah. But also, it's so awkward, particular, it can be awkward in groups, but particularly one-on-one, it's awkward for you to be sitting there and telling the client what to do. Rather, what makes more sense and what's more human is, hey, let's stand up together because you just told me this really heavy story and that must feel really hard for you. And you may not say it, but you're feeling, and it's hard for me, right? Because of the yeah. vicarious trauma. So let's stand up and now we're going to do this thing, whatever. And we have all these interventions. Maybe it's inhale, doing sun breaths, like take your arms up over your head as you inhale and exhale and lower them back down. We're going to do that 10 times. And as we exhale, we're going to release the story and let it go out there. Um, and, you know, let it come out from us, let it go out there, let it be absorbed by the love of, of your deity, if you're somebody who's religious, or the earth, if you want to think about it that way, the earth as a recycling program for your emotions. So let's do this 10 times. And then you are doing this 10 deep breaths with a little bit of arm movement, and you're also visualizing and letting the story go. And and there's a parallel process. It's, it's essential. I mean, or I shouldn't say essential. It's uh, inevitable is what I mean. It's inevitable this parallel process is going to influence your nervous system. And so instead of having to sit there and hold this tension in your body from the traumatic stories that you're hearing from your clients, you're able to integrate it as well. So we, we typically recommend folks use two or three or five minutes at the beginning of practice, at the beginning of the session. And then in the middle of the session, when something feels heavy and needs to be integrated, that's another place. And then as a closing ritual and different clinicians do different things based on what what works for them. And then 
many of the people that we've, and what, what feels natural, what feels like it flows with their session. And many of the people we've trained do group sessions where they're doing longer interventions, 20 or 30 minutes of yoga interventions for nervous system regulating. They do some psychoeducational piece. They do some practices. Then they talk about it and integrate it. So there's a check-in, a check-out, maybe some, maybe some piece in the middle. And they're doing 20 or 30 minutes of chair practices or standing or even mat practices. This is such a wonderful way to run groups. You know, groups oh, yeah. oftentimes. Yeah. And I think groups oftentimes are about learning. They're they're about learning techniques that you can take away. They're about processing and feeling like you're in community. So yoga fits in really well there. So we have lots of people who really love the shorter practices, the brief interventions, we like to call them, in their clinical sessions. And then there's lots of people who like to do groups once or twice a week. And then they're getting to do this yoga and this breathing and they feel better after. I got to tell you, it's amazing. It really is. And especially because some days I don't always have subtle yoga in my sessions, depending on the clients or what's happening that day. But I was like, sometimes when I get to do, it's a good subtle yoga day. <laughs> and it's really like such a difference. It really makes a difference. Right. So at the end of the day, you've seen three or five or God forbid, seven clients, but people do it. <laughs> you've seen all these clients after your day. And at yes. the end of the day, you don't feel so drained because you've done a few things to recharge throughout the day. And the other part with that, too, and it's not always grounding, it's the energizing piece. And before our interview, I did some of the energizing uh, parts of Sajkul Yoga, and that helps, too, because if you're just feeling drained and how am right. I going to keep going? It does, and what did I do? Five minutes. But even that five minutes is so helpful. It's amazing how much five minutes can change your day. It's really amazing. And then you start to think, five minutes felt good. Maybe five yeah. minutes will <laughs> feel better. <laughs> exactly. I know. But self-care is an ethical imperative, right? In self-care, it particularly in the healing professions, I think that the mental health profession is much better at self-care than the allied health world as so, and other people in the allied health world. So I love the fact that mental health clinicians are so focused on self-care. And you, when you start thinking about your day, like I'm gonna get up just 10 minutes earlier so I can lie on the floor and stretch out a little bit and do some breathing while I'm moving. How much better your day is because of that small time that you took to take care of yourself and how much better you're going to show up for other people. And I think it, that's so integrative, too, with our busy days that I took five minutes. Everybody's got five minutes. If you don't have five minutes, that's a problem <laughs> right there. Exactly. You know? Exactly. <laughs> and because there is, I think, as I've talked to a lot of therapists and counselors over the years, a lot of times it does come up, oh, I don't have time or how can I do this? And my schedule is already busy, but it's that prioritizing. And I think we talked about this in episode six. I had Dr. Carla Marie Manley on and, and she mentioned the same thing about it being an imperative. It's like you have to make time for it in order for you to be most effective as a clinician. That's right. And why is that not a universal throughout the healthcare system? It blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. So do you have another teacher training coming up? Yes, I do, actually. Where we began our this year's cohort already, but there's still time to jump in. The trainings will resume in September. So you can look up information at mayhack.org or on, I think it's on my website. If you don't find it on my website, it's definitely on Mayhack's website. My website okay, is subtleyoga.com. Yeah. 
And what is a takeaway that you could share today that could help listeners who are starting their holistic journey? Personally or professionally? Whatever you want to share. There's no right or wrong answer. What I would share is that when you take some time every day to connect with your breath and connect with the sensations in your body and connect with your higher power, that it helps you not only to know yourself better and have a deeper sense of meaning and purpose, but it helps you to reconnect with your humanity, with that part of you, that that pure, untouched part of you, that part of you that never changes, that part of you that's eternal, if you like, if you think in those terms. If you don't, that's okay. But it helps you to connect with that part of yourself. So my takeaway would be, can you spend five minutes every day and all you have with whatever your favorite contemplative thing is, whatever your favorite movement and stretching is, whatever your favorite breath is, start there. I could teach you a lot more, of course, about whatever your favorite, yeah. whatever your favorite is right now, start there and, and bring it, make it a part of your life as common and as natural as brushing your teeth. And uh, you will start, you will begin to see profound changes and you'll find more contentment and feel a greater sense of meaning and purpose and connection to all beings if you do that. So however you're doing it for yourself is part, I see that as part of yoga, whether it's in a religious context or not, I see it as part of the yoga tradition. And I hope that uh, that your listeners value themselves enough and see the importance and see the importance of your work. It's so such important work, especially at these times, that you will take time to take care of yourself. And on that, thank you for coming on today, Christine. Thanks for having me. It was really fun to talk yeah. to you. This is awesome. Great to, great to hear about your work. And, yeah. and thank you. And to my listeners, thank you for tuning in today and being part of this holistic community. Remember to subscribe, rate, review wherever you get your podcasts. And this is Chris McDonald sending each one of you much light and love. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening. The information in this podcast is for general educational purposes only, and it is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are giving legal, financial, counseling, or any other kind of professional advice. If you need a professional, please find the right one for you. The Holistic Counseling Podcast is proudly part of the SiteCraft Network.